Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, welcome to All Things Tudor. I am Deb Hunter. And today we have got such a great show for you. You are going to get to talk to Professor Christine Adams and Professor Tracy Adams. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks very much. And thanks for inviting us here today. Same here. Nice to meet you. The first question I have to ask, are you related in any way? Yeah, we're colleagues first and foremost, and we try not to put too much emphasis on the sister business because there's something slightly comical about it. So she's my sister, but she's also one of my very best friends and a devoted colleague, and we work together very well. Yes. Well, I absolutely love the way you think, and the fact that your sisters makes it even better. I really want to talk to you today about your wonderful book that was sent to me by Penn State University. It's called The Creation of the French Royal Mistress. So before we do that, now that we know a little about your personal background, if we were at a professional conference and you met me, how would you introduce yourselves? So I would say I'm a professor of history at a small liberal arts college in Southern Maryland, um, not too far from D.C., and my research expertise is primarily on family and gender. I'm originally from the Midwest. I became interested in French and actually British history at a fairly young age. I read, read historical fiction voraciously, things like Jean Platy. And so getting to be a historian is, is a dream job. Okay, I'd say that I teach at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. And then you would forever afterwards think that I worked in Australia always out of that confusion. I'm in a department of cultural studies. So I am a specialist, I guess, in medieval and early modern French literature. But I'm actually a lot more interested in the people than in their books. So I've sort of moved into a different direction, I guess you could say, over the course of my career. Well, you both have fascinating careers, that's for sure, and have written, again, a fascinating book. I know French mistresses in your Book, the rise of the French royal mistress corresponds with what we know to be Tudor England. So let's talk about what made these ladies so special, how they differed from the mistresses of the Tudors, and how you came up with this great thesis from your book. If you want to start with the Tudors, let's talk about Anne Boleyn for a minute because there's a conception that Henry VIII wanted her to become his official mistress, which is absolutely not true because there was no such thing as, in air quotes, an official mistress at the time. Francis I's mistress was Francoise de Foix, who was an ordinary mistress without any particular political power, just like Henry VIII's own mistresses. So it's true that it began during the, the Tudor time, but not 
as early as is usually understood. So the, the real official mistress, and we're using that term just for convenience, starts in about 1538 when the Duchesse de Tempes starts to be approached by ambassadors and she starts to act on behalf of Francis I. Okay, Chris, what do you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that too, what we found is that the French mistresses have an important political role. And that's something that we don't really find in the English case, I think. And so that particular political role is really what made the French mistress unique. And that, like Tracy said, starts to develop with the Duchess de Tump and is elaborated as time goes on. I think that's another really important point, picking up on the elaboration. From the very end of the 17th century, the French are aware of themselves as having this sort of unique tradition, a genealogy of the French royal mistress. You already um, see it the end of the 17th century, but it becomes really extreme in the 19th century with the professionalization of history. And historians become very interested in these women and they weave them into their idea of nationalism. And that's very different from England. England has never seen the mistress as an essential aspect of English national identity. On the contrary. That's a very good point. What do you think or what led to the French ladies getting involved in the politics of the era? So this is something that we really outline in the book. And we find that beginning in the 15th century, there were these key structures that converged at court to really create a space for the royal mistress. And the first was an idea of gender that was already in place, right? That while women were legally inferior to men, they were men's equal in competence. And you see this in the fact that the queens were considered the safest regions for their husbands, right? And so the royal mistress becomes the counterpoint, in a sense, to the royal favorite. So that's the first thing. The second is that the Renaissance is a period where people start to experience spaces theatrical. And this is something that we elaborate on. This shift to a theatrical world opened up new ways of imagining political guile, and that becomes to be positively associated with the royal mistress. And then finally, the role has to be activated by an intelligent charismatic woman who's associated with the king who seeks out women as advisors. And so, so we look at how that process happens really beginning in the 16th century. And to add one more finally to that, finally you need a king who likes women. And with Francis I, you have that. He, he listened to his mother, Louise of Savoy. He took advice from his sister, Marguerite of Navarre. And so he was susceptible to female advice. So, so he was willing to listen to his mistress also. That is a very good point, very good point. To my surprise from reading your book, the sexual aspect that we would imagine did not play that important of a role, or did I read that incorrectly? Uh, yeah, I would say that it was really quite unimportant. The, a mistress in general, I suppose that there's a, an important sexual aspect, but these women were more than just mistresses. They were political mistresses. And so the king would be devoted to them in a way that he was devoted to, to his queen. So she's someone that he listened to as opposed to someone that he just slept with. I mean, we assume that they did that too, but that aspect of the relationship was never very important as, as far as we can tell. Yeah, to take a slightly later example, 
both the, the, the Marquise de Montespan and also the Marquise de Pompadour, so the mistresses of Louis XIV and especially of Louis XV, they remained in their position as official mistress even after the sexual relationship ended. You see this most clearly with Pompadour. She became Louis XV's official mistress in 1745, and presumably they had a sexual relationship for that period afterwards. By 1750, it's pretty clear that that came to an end. And yet she remained his closest friend, his political advisor, and his, his official mistress, once again in air quotes, until she died in 1764. Yeah, and I'd just also like to point out that, that Francis I had no children with the Duchesse d'Etampes. He had eight children, I think, with, with Claude, his wife, his, his queen, but he had no children with Etampes. Tracy, you brought up Anne Boleyn. Do you believe Anne Boleyn's time at the French court influenced her seven years when she was basically in limbo before she became the Queen of England? I think that it influenced her in really important ways. But I think, first of all, it's important to stress that the French court was no more libidinous, once again in air quotes, than the English court. They were very similar. So at the French court, she learned about the reform because Queen Claude was an early reformer. So she would have returned to England with ideas about religion. And she also would have learned self-representation sort of after the manner of Castiglione, the importance of looking chaste, but being interesting and hopeful, fascinating conversation. So she certainly learned a lot at the French court. She became educated, elegant, interesting, but she didn't learn about sex at the French court. I mean, she was in the entourage of Queen Claude, who was the most pious queen possible. So she returned to England filled with grazia or, or grace, the, the primary quality that Castiglione said was important to become a courtier. So it sounds like she became a master of the art of courtly love. What's courtly love? You're the professor. <laughs> Listen, it's, it's a rhetorical question, I guess. And the answer is that the minute you try to describe it, you end up with nothing. If it means that, that men and women have relationships, that men court women, okay. But what does that mean? I mean, it's no more informative than saying people expressed anger at court. I mean, of course they did. But what's interesting are the particularities. So a master of courtly love, what would that mean? I don't think it means what people typically think it means. I think that Anne Boleyn learned how to be graceful, how to play instruments beautifully. She learned how to speak intelligently about religion. And if that's what you mean by courtly love, okay, but I don't think that's what people mean by courtly love. I think people mean some kind of ritualistic behavior modeled on the troubadour. And if that's what they mean, no, they, they certainly did not do that at the French court. They, they interacted with interesting conversation, but men didn't go down on their knees in front of ladies. I mean, that never happened. That was a, a theme in poetry. I think of it as more like a game, what we would today call flirting, where you're basically flattering people, talking to them, whatever you would want to call it, and 
maybe some people would use it as a form of manipulation. We don't know. We weren't there. Women couldn't write down their feelings, but um, that's the way I understand it. And that's just a short time. Yeah. Point. If that's what you mean by courtly love, yeah, then then certainly. When has that not been around? Exactly. We, we you do that today, right? Biggest game in town. <laughs> yeah, the thing I object to is just the idea that it was something particular to the French court. Men and women have interacted forever. They continue to interact. Men court women, we know what that means. And if we want to call that courtly love, okay. But it's nothing particular to the French court. Yeah. I mean, what, what might be different with French court and with French female-male relations as it develops over time is that you know, the, the French over time take pride in the primacy accorded to male-female relations, in a sense. And something that the French today refer to as the Gallic singularity or the French singularity. Mono Zouf has talked about this. But that's rather different than partly love. But I do think that the French pride themselves on this particular relationship between men and women, and maybe that's something that we can trace back in time. And they call that gallantry in the 17th century and still today. And they incorporate that into their national identity, or at least a, a significant portion of the population still does. If you listen to podcasts on male-female relations in France today, yeah, they're still really interested in that as a problem. I love going to France because they don't call you ma'am. They call everyone mademoiselle. You could be 125 years old and they would call you mademoiselle. And I absolutely love that. So whatever game they're playing, I'm in. So, <laughs> so I like that. Let's get back to the French Renaissance for a second and look at the rise of power of these women. When they went from being confidants, great friends, however we want to label them, to becoming political figures on their own. How did that evolve? Who would have been the first? The ambassadors. They caught on to the fact that they could get to the king by talking to his mistress, that she would transmit messages for them. So they had to court her. Now, I was going to say that's something that continues. You, you Beginning with the Duchess de Tamp, you see that. And over time in diplomatic correspondence and reports by ambassadors, you see them working through mistresses. So you see them working through Madame de Montespan, you see them working through Maintenon, and you specifically see them working through Pompadour, who in fact would, during her morning toilet, and toilet when she put on makeup, she would have meetings with ambassadors and other courtiers to sort of give them her ear and possibly pass on their request to the kings. So that's something that develops fairly early on and continues to be a task of mistresses and an inn that ambassadors use. And could I just point out once again the importance of theatricality. The ambassador becomes resident at European courts in the 1520s or thereabouts. Before that, you've just got sort of special embassies. But in the 1520s, they start to reside at courts and they talk to each other. They try to get to the king but he's hard to access, so they talk to other people surrounding him. And the mistress is obviously very close to him, so she becomes a conduit to talking to the king. But as for the theatricality, what's interesting is 
that the ambassadors never refer to her as the king's mistress. They refer to her by her name, Madame d'Etampes. Everyone knows who she is, but no one ever says it. Hence our idea of the open secret. She's there in the center of court life. Everyone knows who she is, but no one says what she actually is doing. And she performs differently in front of different audiences. So with the ambassadors, it's clear who she is and what they want from her. But in front of other audiences, she'll be, for example, lady to the queen. And in that context, she is just that. It's part of the fitting her into the courtly structure, I guess you could say. She has to follow these rules. And, and we know this, we know that it was explicit because Catherine de Medicis describes it in a letter once, complaining about one of the mistresses of her um, son-in-law, Henry IV, by saying that in my time, everything was honorable. No one talked about it. Um, Etampe, Diane de Poitiers, no one said who they were, what they were actually doing. Well, with the rise of the Serpent Queen, let's focus in on a ticket, a deep dive, so to speak, Diane. So we're all fascinated with her. Lovers, yeah. there's no gray when it comes to her. So let's talk about her and her rise to power. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting thing because it's so ambiguous in a way, because she appears to have started her relationship with Henry when he was just a little boy, really when he came back from Pavia after he was held hostage and, and she becomes his, his sort of, I don't know, a sort of motherly figure almost. But her actual relationship with him is ambiguous in a lot of ways. Once again, that open secrets at play. Yeah, and I think that was very much calculated. And some of the ambassadors talk about her as an old woman and say that the king can't possibly have been her lover. Not possible. On the other hand, a lot of them think that she was. So there was actually a very clear age division. And to go back to the Serpent Queen, I loved Catherine. In, I, I thought she was just brilliantly portrayed. I was disappointed in Dion. Oh, my God. <laughs> she looks exactly the same age, right? You, you can't see that she's 20 years older than Catherine and Henry. So you miss the, the essence of that relationship which is that ambiguity that, that Chris was talking about. She was a mother figure. So she had plausible deniability. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I had this image of Diane as, as beautiful and elegant, and, and it just, the, the portrayal of her was very problematic. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because when we look at pictures of her, and of course, pictures or paintings of women from that era don't really transfer over to modern day sensibilities. But you look at paintings of her, images of her, that was a very beautiful woman. Even apparently by their standards and even by ours. And there's very few people that from the era that we have images of that we say, oh, you know, she really was beautiful 500 years later, but somehow she still comes across. So I understand what you're saying. I, I find it interesting. They bring up the age difference more with her obsession with gold, how she drinks gold, how she takes, doesn't she take baths in gold? She's just, that's how they show that she's older and concerned about her age instead of portraying this older female who is very powerful, possibly, it's up to you to tell me, more powerful than the queen. 
maybe even more powerful than the king. She really created a special place. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, All Things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. And as a listener to this message, you are already aware of the All Things Tudor podcast. There is also an All Things Tudor book club and a periodic live audio chat, often featuring special guests. Members of the All Things Tudor Facebook group can look forward to some upcoming surprises. So you're invited to become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in All Things Tudor, select the option to join the group and answer the simple membership questions. We look forward to having you join us at All Things Tudor. Yeah, if you want to talk quickly about the gold, her bones have been examined by Philippe Chalier, who is a sort of star forensic specialist who works on, what did he call it? Maybe paleopathology, I think. So, so he studies bones and then tells us about the people. And he has studied her bones and determined that she really did ingest gold. So she really did take some form of liquid gold. In fact, probably led to her death rather than keeping her looking young. Although apparently it kept her complexion very pale, her hair very delicate. Yeah, I mean, I, and you see that in the, the movie, I mean, the, or the, in, the, in the series, she drinks the gold. And, and But as historians, you know, we're forced to sort of deal with little snippets of information that we get about people and then the forensic information that we have. And then we have to somehow impute motives and feelings and the kinds of things that you try to portray in a movie. But it just seemed that the kind of desperation, the kind of comical figure that they make of her doesn't really coincide with what we know about her. And the fact that, as you say, that she was very powerful. Now, once again, we don't know precisely how powerful because she was operating behind the scenes, right? We know that she had influence. We know that ambassadors worked through her. We know that the king turned to her, but that is shadowed. But certainly we have no reason to think that she's the comical and sort of grotesque figure that you see portrayed in the, the series. Yeah, and she carefully cultivated her image as a widow, wearing black and white all of her life and behaving with supreme dignity. She had her chateau that Annette decorated with images of Diana. So she was very conscious of her own imagery. And like Chris says, the idea of her as a desperate sort of woman was just really, really disappointing. And I know how irritating it is to watch a movie with historians, I mean, and to have us fact-checking everything that happens. And so I tried not to do that while I was watching this. But what is more important maybe with historical portrayals, historical film, is to get at the essence of what people were like. And here I think we really blew it with Diane. Yeah, that's not the relationship that I had imagined. Exactly. But don't you think it makes people dig and look for what was real and try to find out more about the real person? Yes, that's what we find in the All Things Tudor group, that there are people that really want the documentary. And that's great. There's definitely a call for that. But most of us understand this is done for entertainment. And we may, not, oh, yeah. we may not like it. I have to say, I do like Diane's outfits, 
the way they've done it. The black. <laughs> I, I, I really like that, but I do find her kind of coming off as an airhead, and that is bothersome when you think about just the opposite. Yes. You know, when you think about how cultivated she was, how powerful she was, how she and worked things to her own advantage, and and where she came from, where she ended up, she's just one of the most fascinating people in history, I think. And I'm glad she's actually getting some exposure. I couldn't agree with you more about the importance of starting these conversations. People watch these shows and then they talk about them which is what you're supposed to do with movies, right? I mean, a movie that doesn't actually incite discussion wouldn't be interesting. So I think it's really important that people are moved then to search for, in air quotes again, the real story, because we all have our own special characters, the ones that we identify with, and it's really important to give people material to think about about them. That's true, and you pointed something out I would like to bring up because I'm very much into branding. You mentioned how she had the goddess Diana everywhere. She was like one of the first recorded females to brand herself, as we would call it now. If she was an influencer, she branded herself. She made herself into this goddess-like feature. No one had ever done that before, had they? No, really not at all. Because Diana was primarily an allegorical character up until the end of the 15th century. And at that point, the stories start to get expanded. Before that, you see little bits of the story interspersed with allegorical interpretation. So you never really have a chance to tell the whole story. So the difference, I think, between mythology in the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance is that the stories in their entirety become available. And so that story was available as of the early 16th century, and then she starts to use it. And it's something that future mistresses then pick up on, right? After Diana, just about every mistress has herself painted as Diana. So that's imagery that, that clearly works for other mistresses. And of course, Pompadour was the huntress. You know, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> no. exactly. One last thing about the branding, you point out in your book how the allegorical aspect of being a mistress and how everything, you know, was saints, saints everywhere, and you couldn't really brand yourself as a saint if you were a royal mistress, and how Diana was like, oh, I will just take this mythological goddess, and there I am. And, I mean, you're much more academic <laughs> but in so many words, it's almost like she was like, oh, no, I've got this. And you have to love that about her. There's a great story about Cellini who created a great big plaque of bronze and it depicted Diana. And the Duchesse d'Etampes saw that and said, you're not going to put that up here at, at Fontainebleau. And so then it was sort of turned over to Diane de Poitiers. And so we guess that she was bothered by the image of Diane because she associated that with Diane de Poitiers. I love that anecdote. Let me ask you two, what are you researching now? What can we look forward to reading in the future or hearing about from you? What I'm working on now is a book about Anne Boleyn. And what can I say? I guess that what I'm trying to do is dismantle the, the sexy myth in a bunch of different ways. Talking about sexuality in the 16th century 
and the way she acquired that image, what that actually meant, how it was only insulting in the 16th century, and then trying to present her as a sort of Marguerite of Navarre figure. So someone who was very pious, interested in the reform, who didn't want to marry the king, but she was talked into it because the king convinced her that she was providentially, she was meant to bear the Tudor heir. And when he convinced her of that, she gave in and married him, but she was right to have been frightened. Very much so. And I'm glad you pointed that out because I think we forget that during that era, they believed they were appointed by God to be the ruler. So if the king fell in love with him, there was a reason he fell in love with him. And that's the yeah. that often gets overlooked. Like you say, at the site, oh, she was sexy, she seduced him, she wanted to be clean, her family wanted her to have power, they wanted to, the wealth and the power that went along with that. But I think we forget quite often that if the king wanted something, that it was about providence. So he was going to get it. He was going to get it. But I would just stop and say, Imagine the scenario had Henry VIII announced at court that he was going to marry Anne Boleyn and she refused. I don't think that he could have forced her to marry him. So, so I'm an 18th century specialist rather than, a, than an early modernist, uh, but I'm actually drawing on the tradition of royal mistresses dating from the 16th century for my new project, which is on a group of women called the Meveyes, which translates as the marvelous ones. And this was a group of young, stylish Parisian women who sort of come to define the era of the Directory, which is the period from 1794 to 1799 in France. And so following the period of the Reign of Terror and the French Revolution, you have this group of sort of chic, stylish young women who really set the tone in French society until Napoleon Bonaparte's coup in 1799. And so I'm interested in looking at these women as a, as a cultural phenomenon but also at their function in the historical imaginary. And I believe that the study will illuminate how the fixation on their, their beauty and their style and their sexuality has really obscured the political and cultural significance of women under the directory. And I really see them as, I guess, a, a direct line from female courtiers and, in fact, royal mistresses to these women under the directory. Later on, in the 19th and 20th century, they become a sort of cautionary tale for people who believe that women should be excluded from the political sphere. So, so that's what I'm working on. Well, I love the fact that you're both working on giving females agency. I find that to be very powerful, and I'm thrilled that you took time to be my guest today. And how can we find you? Are you on any of the socials? I'm on Twitter, and it's at Prof Chris Adams. And I have the same handle on Mastodon. I'm sort of <laughs> waiting to see how that all plays out. So I'm on Twitter, but I can't tell you what my handle is. I don't remember. It has numbers in it. So, but if you follow Chris, then I respond to her. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. And honestly, Twitter is so crazy right now. I'm signing on, yes. and I'm not even seeing anybody I know. Yeah, it's like standing there yelling to a bunch of people, and I don't see anybody go through my timeline that I even know. And it's really weird right now. Yeah, having to look so. people up that are on my favorites list, or I just want to talk about history. And they, I know that algorithm thing is just a mess. 
I keep hoping that it will work itself out. We're all sort of waiting to see. And in the meantime, sort of checking out these other platforms, but they're just not the same. Yeah, that's one thing about having my group. We're all just right there. So we can, if I find something on Twitter, most people will have something similar on their website. Like, let's say, if Tracy posted about her M. Blinn work, and I, it did happen to come across my timeline, <laughs> a lot of times things will be transferred to websites. So, no. and, and I always ask, but that is a good way if you ever want to post anything with the All Things Tutor group, just get in touch with me or just join oh, and post it okay. yourself. Because we're all about knowledge. I mean, we like to have fun too, but we really share a lot of scholarly works and books. We're, we're really, I think we're a book group, a history book group is what we actually are. <laughs> so, yes, yeah. It's such a great thing. I mean, it's so, so great to have these, these groups of people interested in these topics where you can find this kind of information. Yeah, your podcast is terrific. Well, thank you. I appreciate that so much. And I'm thrilled at how it's caught on because when I started, I thought no one is going to want to hear someone with a Southern accent talk about shooter history. Oh, oh good heavens, no. <laughs> what was I wrong? <laughs> and people people love the tutors. I mean, they love this kind of stuff. They really do. And I'm very thankful for everyone listening to my podcast that goes without saying. And thankful that y'all joined today. It's been great talking to you. You are welcome to come back at any time on that. Do you have anything else you want to add? I, I just want to say I, I thank you. I mean, it was wonderful to have this opportunity to talk to you. Yeah, so much fun to discuss this stuff. And so it's so great to have people interested in the work that we're doing and to, to just sit and chat about it for a while. We love it. And with Serpent Queen, people are wanting to know more. And of course, Catherine de Medici was Mary kind of St Scott's mother-in-law, and then we have Diane as the royal mistress, and you know it's just a, a thing. And the brief lives fabulous, and well, practically I lost Samantha Morton who plays Catherine. So, oh, she's so fabulous. She is so fabulous. Yeah, she looks so prim and modest, and then she she always wins. <laughs> it really is. Well, thank you again, and I. Huge thank you for joining today. And I want to take a second to thank our listeners for joining us and for making the magic happen. You can follow and subscribe to this podcast for free on all podcast platforms. Please leave a review. And I really want to thank Liz for her support over the last couple of weeks and tell everyone to have a, a great day. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.